This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, May 7th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Experts are saying contact tracing is necessary to respond to COVID-19. Klon Kitchen, a senior research fellow in technology at the Heritage Foundation, joins me on the Daily Signal podcast to unpack what contact tracing is, how it will be used, and more. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. The Little Sisters of the Poor were back in the Supreme Court on Wednesday. In 2016, the Catholic Order of Nuns was at the Supreme Court, arguing they shouldn't have to violate their beliefs and offer employees contraceptive coverage. In 2017, the Trump administration issued a rule that exempted religious organizations from having to provide contraceptive coverage. But that wasn't the end of the story, because the state of Pennsylvania sued the federal government over the exemption. And so on Wednesday, the justices heard arguments via teleconference for the case Little Sisters of the Poor v. Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the hearing via phone from a hospital where she's being treated. Luke Goodrich, a lawyer for Beckett Law Firm, tweeted after the hearing, key takeaways from the Little Sisters argument at hashtag SCOTUS today. One, it was clear the government has many ways to give out contraception. It doesn't need to conscript nuns. So hashtag religious freedom protects the sisters. He also tweeted three, the state's argument was exposed as startlingly broad. It not only attacked the exemption for the state, it not only attacked the exemption for the sisters, it said the government even lacked authority to exempt churches. Alito jumped on this. No justice seemed to buy it. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is putting out formal rules to bolster Title IX protections for survivors of sexual misconduct and to restore due process in campus proceedings to ensure all students can pursue an education free from sex discrimination, according to a press release from the Department of Education. Here's what she had to say about the new rules and the need for them in a message posted on YouTube. Americans and people all over the world are grappling with changing and challenging circumstances, but our work continues. So I want to speak with you directly about a serious issue. Two years ago, I made a promise to address the scourge of sexual misconduct on our nation's campuses. Today, we take historic action on Title IX because we must because students, their safety and their success are at the center of everything we do. From Brown versus the Board of Education, to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, to the Every Student Succeeds Act, America has continued to expand and protect opportunities for students to learn. That's also true for Title IX. It was enacted to ensure, and I quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Title IX is a just cause, and it's the law. Title IX has brought an end to many injustices since it was enacted, and the new rule we announced today will help end more. I take the responsibility of enforcing Title IX seriously. Our Office for Civil Rights takes that responsibility seriously. There is no place for sexual misconduct anywhere. Such acts are disgusting and unacceptable. 
Vice President Mike Pence is pleased with the Department of Justice's decision to side with a Virginia church in a lawsuit against Governor Ralph Northam. Lighthouse Fellowship Church on Chincoteague Island held a service with 16 people on Palm Sunday. Kevin Wilson, pastor of the church, was threatened by the state with jail time and a $2,000 and a $2,500 fine. Vice President Mike Pence joined the Brian Kilmeade show on Fox News Radio on Wednesday and had this to say regarding the DOJ's decision to support the church. The very idea that the Commonwealth of Virginia would sanction a church for having 16 people come to a Palm Sunday service, when I think the church actually seats 250, was just beyond the pale. And I'm truly grateful for Attorney General William Barr standing by religious liberty as we approach the National Day of Prayer this Thursday. The legislature of Michigan has sued Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in an effort to put a stop to her coronavirus emergency orders. On Tuesday, Lee Chatfield, Speaker of Michigan House, tweeted, We've attempted to partner with our governor, but she's rejected. We offered cooperation, but instead she chose court. This was avoidable, but today we filed a lawsuit in our state to challenge her unconstitutional actions. The law in Michigan is clear, and nobody is above it. Per NPR, the lawmakers are saying Whitmer is acting illegally and overstepping her authority. Whitmer, who just expanded the coronavirus emergency orders through May 28th, recently eased restrictions on industries such as construction and landscaping. And as member station Michigan Radio reports, Whitmer said this week that the state must carefully study the situation before allowing more businesses to resume operations, NPR reported. Facebook has just announced the first 20 members of their Global Oversight Board. The board is intended to have the final say on issues of hate speech and other controversial content. The website of the Oversight Board says the board will take final and binding decisions on whether specific content should be allowed or removed from Facebook and Instagram. Appointees among the 20 include John Sample, Vice President of the Cato Institute, Michael McConnell, a former federal judge, and Pamela Carlon, a former DOJ civil rights attorney. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Heritage Senior Research Fellow Klon Kitchen on contact tracing as a response to COVID-19. The Daily Signal is doing all we can to provide you and your family with the information you need on how to stay healthy through the coronavirus pandemic. Social distancing is one of the best proven ways you can protect yourself and your loved ones. Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, and U.S. Surgeon General Adams explain why. Take a listen. Social distancing is what we refer to when we ask people to stay at least six feet apart. Staying away from people whom you might get coronavirus from or who are at high risk and whom you might spread coronavirus to. You can socially distance yourself from people in social settings by not going to bars, not going to restaurants, not going to theaters where there are a lot of people. It all just means physical separation so that you have a space between you and others who might actually be infected or infect you. We are joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by Klon Kitchen. He's a senior research fellow in technology at the Heritage Foundation. Klon, it's great to have you on the Daily Signal podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. 
Well, thank you for being with us. You recently had a piece come out on heritage.org on the Apple Google partnership to fight COVID-19 and you're writing about the promises and perils of contact tracing. So to start off before we get into uh, nitty gritty here, can you tell us what contact tracing is? Sure. So contact tracing is a standard tool for responding to um, pandemics. It's been a kind of a a key part of every response, successful response for the last several decades. And what it is, is when an individual is sick with some type of uh, contagion, uh, virus or, or disease that is being tracked by public health officials, they go and they interview that person to determine who all they've been in contact with during the period in which they are able to transmit that um, sickness. And then they follow up with those people to see who they've been in contact with. And what that ultimately allows is it allows researchers to understand where the virus has been and more importantly, where it's going, and then begin to take uh, proactive measures in mitigating the transmission of that virus further. So when it comes to contact tracing, Klein, how could it be used for COVID-19 in the United States? So uh, in one sense, so it's already being done. So um, contact tracing in the context of COVID-19 has been a, a standard mechanism that's been employed essentially since day one precisely because COVID-19 is uh, so easily transmitted and spread so quickly. So public health officials and local, state, and federal uh, policymakers have needed the information that comes from uh, contact tracing. Uh, the big difference is, is that because COVID-19 spreads so quickly, uh, it's outstripped traditional manual contact tracing. So the way it's typically been done in the past is, an individual researcher or investigator goes out and does these interviews and then falls on with the, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 people that you've been in contact with over the last, you know, two weeks. Um, COVID-19 has outstripped our ability to kind of keep up with the speed of transmission. And so what's now being considered are, um, is it possible to use technology in a way that would allow us to do contact tracing in a way that is not only, um, fast enough to keep up with kind of the real-time reality of the virus, but also in a way that maintains or even improves uh, individual privacy as we do that tracing. So let's say that there is a user who opts into contact tracing for COVID-19 and then later finds out she has COVID-19. How does mm -hmm. contact tracing work then? So the first thing to know is that the only people who are going to be allowed to build these apps are public health agencies. So it's not going to be individuals. It's not gonna be individual companies. It's not even gonna be kind of the federal government per se. It could be someone like the CDC. Uh, and there's going to be, uh, both Apple and Google have said that they're going to prioritize essentially one app per country to maintain kind of a, um, a unified approach to it. So what happens is, is uh, you have to voluntary, or excuse, voluntarily download the app. So you only participate if you want to. There's no, um, there's no mandate. Um, and then if you as an individual get tested positive for COVID-19, you then have to choose, you have to volunteer to one, enter that diagnosis into the app. You don't have to, there's no, there's no law that's gonna require you to do that, but, but you may choose to. And if you choose to, you will then have to subsequently approve again that that uh, positive diagnosis be shared with other people. So there's kind of these three layers of uh, kind of a willful act an individual must take for this information to be collected and shared. 
So if you do get the contact tracing app, does that change how much information your phone company has about you and who will have access to that information? No, as we've looked at the, the details of the, of the contact tracing, it doesn't meaningfully change anything about what, you know, kind of big tech or big government has knowledge about in terms of your, uh, your activities. Now, I want to be clear. All of the concerns about privacy and about data acquisition, those are all legitimate. And the ones that we've had before COVID-19 are still going to be there and present after COVID-19. But what we're talking about here is a specific application that is that Apple and Google are being uh, are allowing to be used on their mobile devices that anonymously, and so it anonymizes the data that's collected, and the only information that is collected um, via the 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 app and the API is um, your general proximity to someone else who may have been COVID nineteen. Um, Diagnosed, but what it doesn't collect, it doesn't collect your geolocational uh, information. It doesn't collect who your contacts are. It doesn't identify you by name. It doesn't uh, collect all kinds of other person identifying information. Any information that has to be provided along those lines would be something that an individual would have to willfully provide to an app. But even on top of that, Apple and Google are explaining to the app developers that they will not allow them to request certain types of personally identifying information and that none of this information will be shared with anyone beyond public uh, health officials. So no commercial interests, so no one's gonna be serving you ads, no one's gonna be selling this for marketing data and the government, the law enforcement and intelligence agencies do not get access to this information either. So when it comes to what is being shared, what information uh, will technology companies get and what kind of information will be shared with the government? Yeah, so the the big innovation, what's actually happening here is that they have developed a way to know if an individual has been in close proximity, meaning within 16 to 12 feet, or excuse me, 6 to 12 feet of someone who has been identified as being COVID-19 positive. And they do that without gathering or sharing any of your personal information. What happens is, is if you download the app, in the background, it is generating every 15 minutes a unique um, anonymized key code. And then as you come within six feet, something called Bluetooth on your phone registers all the people that you've been in uh, close proximity to using those same keys. So you're never told about the individual. You're not even identified by location. It's just that this exchange of keys happens automatically. And then what happens is if, if one of the people that you've been in close proximity to is positively identified as having COVID-19 and they choose to share that diagnosis and they share choose to share that diagnosis more publicly, then you would just get a notification saying, hey, sometimes in the last 14 days, you've been in proximity to someone who was COVID-19 positive. They don't tell you who it was. They don't tell you when it was. They don't tell you where it was. It then makes a recommendation that you may or may not uh, want to go get tested. And so that's the real innovation. So there's no additional information that's being collected by what's called the application programming interface, the API, the thing that Apple and Google have built. Now, again, the individual companies, who, or, or excuse me, the public health agencies who uh, build the app may ask you to put your name and your address and things like that into it when you choose to report your COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, that's much the same way it would be if you went to the hospital 
and got uh, diagnosed with COVID-19 as well. They often will collect that information and they'll feed that to public health agencies so that they can then enter it into their models and things like that. One of the cool things about this digital format is that it actually enables a great deal more um, security because all of this information is being um, automated, which means fewer people's eyes are looking at it, and it's being encrypted both at rest and in transit. So what about hacking? Isn't it possible or is it possible that hackers could come across the data that's put into these apps uh, and obtained through contact tracing? So, uh, you know, it's all, hacking is always possible and it's always a threat. Um, but in this case, the way it's being designed, it's actually more secure if that happens. So as I mentioned just now, this information is going to be um, encrypted both at, at rest and in transit. So we're now going to be adding new layers of security that didn't typically exist in traditional manual um, contact tracing. But it's important to understand that in the past, when we would do manual contact tracing, so individuals would still go out, they would investigate, they would take all that information, they would take your name, they would take your address, they would take all that, and they would fill that into databases that public health agencies use for understanding the pandemic and tracking the pandemic. So those databases, um, even if the mobile contact tracing never occurs, those databases are still something that need to be secured and need to be um, you know, defended against hacking. So the hacking threat is always there. The key in this uh, distinction here is that we're now going to be using Apple and Google, two companies who pay more on cybersecurity and spend more on cybersecurity than anyone else on the planet uh, to help defend against those, um, those, those risks. So looking at the international perspective, have other countries tried contact tracing in order to deal with COVID-19 or even other matters? And has it worked with these other nations? So yes, uh, virtually every country who is dealing with COVID-19 uh, challenge has had to do contact tracing. Again, that's been kind of a standard operating procedure for decades. There have been several nations that have that have attempted to do the digital contact tracing that we're talking about. And that, that represents a pretty broad spectrum of governments in terms of their concerns about privacy and even their population's expectations of privacy. So it's going to include everything from Australia, which would largely line up with kind of American perspectives and, and expectations, uh, to uh, the United Kingdom, France and Germany, which are going to be maybe not quite as robust uh, on uh, on individual privacy and communications privacy than as the U.S. and Australia would be, all the way down to like Taiwan and China, which are going to have very different cultural government expectations for privacy. But where it's been rolled out, it has shown to be an effective mechanism for having a better understanding of what is going on with the COVID-19 crisis. So since, as you mentioned, Apple and Google are going to be kind of leading the way um, with contact tracing and the apps that they'll be installing for users, should there be any oversight of Apple and Google? And if so, what would that look like? Yeah, so when we wrote our paper, we made um, eight recommendations that both industry and government should adopt um, in, in rolling this out because there are very real, legitimate, uh, and important concerns that people will have as it regards individual privacy and, you know, kind of big tech and big government. Now, the good news is, is that since we've issued our report, Apple and Google have updated their uh, requirements for app developers who are going to use this to include six of those eight recommendations. So, for example, um, 
the uh, responses that are provided to the app cannot be shared with law enforcement or intelligence purposes. Uh, apps can only collect the minimum data that is needed for contact tracing and notification. Uh, no collected data can be used for commercial efforts, no selling ads, licensing the information or anything like that. Um, the apps won't be, you know, chock full of advertisements or product promotions or other marketing. The app cannot request the use of location data or what's called Bluetooth administrative privileges or special access or anything else on a user's phone. So a lot of the concerns that we had are actually being addressed. Um, two, oversight right now is largely in place. So a lot of these things uh, are already bound by law and are going to um, fall within congressional oversight and any uh, notion of um, deviation from these requirements will be something that Congress could quickly act on and, and engage if it was necessary. How would you say privacy risks could be minimized uh, given the fact that people are concerned about their privacy being protected? Yeah, so in addition to kind of what I've already laid out in terms of some of the rules that are being put in place, it needs to be clear that these companies, uh, phone companies, tech companies, app development companies, they collect a lot of information and they collect the information that consumers agree to give them. And they do that when they agree to what's called terms of service uh, agreements. And that is, is, has been in place before COVID-19 and will be in place after COVID-19. And so what I'm not saying is that, you know, Apple and Google and these app development, uh, app developers don't have additional information. They do, but they will not be getting more information or even most of the information they already have through this digital contact tracing initiative. It's something wholly separate and, and, and distinct, and they are only collecting the minimal amount of data that is necessary to do this one mission. So I'm not saying there's no concern for privacy. I'm just saying that this digital contact privacy effort doesn't material affect those concerns for good or for ill. Well, there was a poll released in late April from the Washington Post and the University of Maryland, which said that half Americans who responded to the poll with a smartphone wouldn't use the app that traced them during COVID-19. What would you say to an American who's concerned about this app? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that the concerns are understandable, they're legitimate, and deserve a, a careful uh, consideration and response. Uh, the second thing I would say is that, you know, the Heritage Foundation pays me to to do that type of considered, careful uh, investigation and response. And and my assessment is that digital contact tracing does not material materially uh, affect someone's uh, exposure to either government or industry data collection. It, it just there is a minimal amount of data that's being collected. And um, much of this information on the industry side is collected via other mechanisms. So they don't frankly need to use the digital contact chasing to get that stuff. But then two, it's equally true that the federal government's you know, subpoena and warrant authorities are in place and they can um, serve warrants and subpoenas on these companies if they have a, a justification. And then those companies can go through the normal process of either complying or resisting. So all of that is happening 
uh, above and beyond the digital contract tra- contact tracing effort. Um, what I will say is that um, the good news about all of this is that it's completely voluntary and cannot be, you will not be compelled to do this. So if you just do not want to do it, you don't have to, and that's great. One of the reasons why uh, it may be something that people want to consider, however, is that it is now kind of an, an undeniable truth, and this is something that even the Trump administration has made clear, that contact tracing is an essential element of getting our nation back up and running. So we have to have an awareness of where this virus is and where it's going if we want to come out of our homes, open up the economy, and be productive going forward. And so if there is a way where digital contact tracing not only enables that, but enables us to do that in a more secure way, it's something worth considering. Well, Colin, thank you so much for unpacking this for us and joining us on the Daily Signal podcast. It's been great to have you. My pleasure. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We do appreciate your patience as we record remotely during these weeks. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us your feedback. Stay healthy and we will be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.